1: Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know, I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me, but I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Order. Earth Water is a company that is faith- based, and patriotic. Earth water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? (laughs) Who doesn't? If so, Check out the Earth Water Link on my home page at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, Southern com. And welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense. Oh, live on uh oh, where the heck are we shr media the lone star daily news up an itunes stitcher spreaker all oh, the heck with it go to the name of the show put it dash in the middle southern hyphen dot com i'm your hostess with the most just the radio chick annie along with my co-host curtis c.s bennett good afternoon curtis we got an exciting show today
2: oh yeah courageous is here too to um <laughs> introduce my guest <laughs> i'm looking forward to it um <laughs> yeah, I like that title. But anyway, I'd I like to say that okay. we, we send our prayers out to those who are facing the storm and um, hopefully um, they will have enough power this evening so they can listen to our podcast.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, if anyone's trying to tune into the YouTube channel, I'm having some difficulty with that. Uh, so it's not going out on YouTube, but it is up on Facebook. We'll try to get the broadcast up onto YouTube a little bit later on uh, this afternoon. And anyone that's in the path of Florence, please hunker down, get yourself to safety. If you've got to stay put, make sure you've got a backup generator, food, water, uh, everything else what we normally do is we take one bathtub and we fill it with water so we have enough water if we need to flush toilets or just to use to wash our hands not for drinking just make sure you've got enough bottled water uh safely put aside also uh we're also yeah. we lasted through matthew and this one is going to be a cakewalk because we're at one of the outer outer bands i don't expect too much except for you know the surge from the uh the rain and uh, we're just starting to get a little overcast here. About an hour ago, up to about an hour ago, we had bright sunshine, upper 80s, and the breeze wow. feels good because the hum- it takes the humidity out of the air. And that breeze is just delicious right now. Anyway,
2: well, did the, great show. Well, did to- the eye of the storm? Did the eye of the storm land yet, or just the outer bands?
1: Uh, no, I do believe the eye of the storm is up around Wilmington area right now. And they do expect it to stall over land, and it's going to be a long, drawn-out slug for a couple of days. They're saying 36 to 48 hours possible for the rainfall uh, before it starts to head further north. Um, So, Mm -hmm. like I said, we're at one of the southern bands, so we'll probably get maybe a day of of rain, and that'll be it for us. Um, So we're all set. And we, we anticipate losing power. We've got two generators, one gas and one propane. And uh, we're <laughs> locked and loaded for bear,
0: <laughs> all right.
1: Anyway, we got two great guests that are going to be joining us. I have never had the honor of inter- interviewing these gentlemen, so it'll be a new uh venture for me. Um, we got Dr. Ernie Panza, known as the Hug Doctor. Uh, this is going to be something completely out of my field, <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's going to be interesting, yeah.
2: Mine's too. and we also. <laughs>
0: We
1: also have uh, Demetrius Minor, calls himself D. Minor. A very interesting individual. He's a pastor. He was a former intern in the Bush White House. Uh, he works for Americans with Prosperity as well as Project 21. Uh, he also has another program, EJUSA, that we're going to be talking to him about. And I don't even know where we're going to be going with him. It's going to be all <laughs> flying by the seat of the pants. Yeah. So we'll have a lot of fun anyway, no matter what we do. That said, people that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with the dedication to a fallen hero. And sometimes these things are very easy to research and do, and other times trying to find any information is like pulling teeth. And unfortunately, this is the same for this gentleman that we're going to dedicate the show to, Sergeant First Class Maitland D. Wilson. He passed away on March 7th of this year while serving during Operation Inherent. Resolve. And this is from the Fallen at TheMilitaryTimes.com. Sergeant First Class Maitland D. Wilson died March seventh, 2018, serving during Operation Inherent Resolve. He was 38, from Brooklyn, New York, and he died on March seventh in Landstall, Germany, from a non-combat-related incident. Wilson was assigned to the 831st Transportation Battalion, 595th Transportation Brigade, Manama Behran, a soldier based in Behran who was supporting Operation Inherent Resolve, died in Germany, the Defense Department said. Sergeant First Class Nathan Wilson passed away from a medical issue, Army Military Surface Deployment and Distribution Spokesman Frederick Rice told the Army Times. Wilson, a cargo specialist with the 831st Transportation Battalion, 595th Transportation Brigade, was supporting Operation Inherent Resolve, the DOD release said, the U.S. military effort against ISIS. Wilson, who was from Brooklyn, New York, joined the Army in 2000 and had been with the unit since March, last March, Rice said. Wilson had deployed numerous times, including to Iraq. Afghanistan, Kuwait, and Haiti. His awards and decorations include the Meritorious Service Medal, five Army Commendation Medals, and two Army Achievement Medals. The incident was under investigation, according to the release. And then I found an article in the New York Daily News written by James Finelli. And he wrote A Brooklyn U.S. Army sergeant who planned to marry the love of his life, a fellow soldier, died unexpectedly on Wednesday, March 7th. His family said, First class, Sergeant First Class Maitland de Weaver Wilson, 38, died in Germany after suffering a stroke in Behran. He had been stationed there as a cargo specialist with the 831st Transportation Battalion. Nobody could speak a bad word about him, his fiancée, Dawn Hawkins, 36, said. He cared for everybody. He never turned his back on anyone. Hawkins, who lived in Newport News, Virginia, with Wilson, said before getting the heartbreaking news, she had planned to fly to Bayron on Monday to marry her fiancée of two years. The two had been together for eight years and met in the military. Wilson grew up in Bedford-Stuyvesant and attended City University of New York, but did not finish his degree. He enlisted in the Army in August of 2000 and had been on active duty for the past 17 years with deployments to Kuwait, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He also served in the 2010 Humanitarian Assistance Operation in Haiti. He was an awesome person, said Hawkins, who enlisted in 2004, but is now medically discharged. The Army said Wilson was stationed in Manama Behran at the time of his death. He was supporting Operation Inherent Resolve. The military action aims to wipe out potential threats posed by ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Hawkins said Wilson suffered the stroke nearly two weeks ago and was transported to the land style Germany for medical treatment. His mother had flown to Germany to be with him. Hawkins said she and Wilson's family were in shock over his death. I just knew he was suffering from really bad headaches, she said of his condition before the stroke. The army said Wilson's death was still under investigation. Sometimes these dedications are difficult to do because it doesn't speak a lot about the person. But it does speak a lot about the future he looked forward to. A future with a new wife to build a new life. Today's show, dedicated to Sergeant First Class Lindy Wilson. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve from the birth of our nation through today and into our future. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency responders. We dedicate to all these brave men and women this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one of them. Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, S H R Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, Southern Cents, Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most gist, the Radio Chick Annie, along with my curious and courageous co-host Curtis Bennett. I'm not to pick as... up new ones, Curtis.
2: Yeah, I'm not as courageous as those who decided to um, face the storm instead of evacuating.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, it's a piece of cake, a piece of cake. We did it with Matthew. Hey, we even broadcast while Matthew was hitting us. (laughs) And,
2: you know, I'm starting to to catch on how they build these storms up, and then when they come, you know, it's it's almost like they almost peter out, you know, and I wonder sometimes. You know, if they do that just for ratings, you know, keep it going, keep it going, you know.
1: Well, actually, I know that our governor had declared a state of emergency before uh, it even hit back on on Sunday and Monday, uh, but that's for federal dollars. Uh, and meanwhile, Curtis, we've uh, got our guest to be on the line, uh, so let's welcome aboard Dr. Ernie Panza. Good afternoon, sir. How are you today?
3: I'm fantastic, thank you,
2: Ernie. How's it going?
3: Hey, good. Very good. Thank you for allowing me to be on your show. I consider this a very, very wonderful honor. Oh, it is our pleasure.
1: And you've got me somewhat um, out of my field because uh, I don't even know where to start with you because I'm I'm not exactly, uh, I shouldn't say I'm not unfamiliar with the subject, but having not read any of your books, unfortunately, I'm just going to be winging it as we go along um i read your bio and i had a crack up that you said that you once were voted most likely to go to jail <laughs> are
0: you, are you sure yes, you want to brag that, about and, that? And
3: that yeah no that's that's a true story uh i'll i'll explain why if you like if uh, you know if, if that's. i i would i would go with any direction that you uh, feel comfortable with well, that's go ahead. You, you explain throw the questions. because no, you I'm. The at me. As I say, you throw the questions at me and I'll answer the best I can. How's that? That is truthful.
1: All right. Well, uh, like you, I I do have dyslexia. Uh, unlike you, uh, I didn't go to the bottom of the class. I, I was at the time I grew up in the 60s, a decade after you, uh, they were recognizing dyslexia because uh, I also had a stuttering problem. And even to this day, I occasionally do have a stuttering problem if I'm overtired or if I'm stressed. Uh, and I got to tell you, uh, they sent me to a speech therapist when I was in junior high and I walked into the speech therapist and I'm an outgoing individual. I stuck my hand out and I gave her a firm handshake and I introduced myself and she goes, that's your problem. You're too forward. You're too aggressive. And your handshake was too firm. I'm like, what? And she gave me one of these limp wrists. you know, how do you do? And I'm like, oh my goodness, put this woman back in the bottle. But you know people have to be assertive if they want to get anywhere in life
3: right you're you're exactly right, and there i guess I guess some people that um aren't assertive, maybe she wasn't feels that you were you know you were too assertive but i I was more or less um a, a bit shy because everybody, including my parents and and relatives, all thought that I was stupid and dumb and I would never learn anything. Uh, I failed fifth grade, and of course, uh, I was raised in the fifties, and uh, that was kind of my decade. And dyslexia was something that no one really ever heard about. And uh, what what happened to me was like, I I guess the point I would try to make uh, to everybody I talk to is, everything nothing happens in the universe by accident. Everything happens to us for a reason or a lesson to be learned from it, and that's exactly what happened to me. For some reason. I wanted to go to the Coast Guard my entire life up until uh, I graduated from high school, which I almost didn't, to tell you the truth. And I, left, I, I was raised in Pittsburgh. I went downtown to the uh, Coast Guard recruiter uh, in December and uh, uh, went in with all these other all these other at the time, all guys, went in, sat down, and they gave us a written exam. Well, I didn't know there was going to be a written exam. And I failed it miserably. And they told me then after the exam that I I couldn't go to the Coast Guard didn't I didn't pass it. Uh, I was totally, totally um, despondent and just out of sorts because that was my goal in life was to go to the Coast Guard. And and this is a very true story. I walked around the corner uh, in in downtown Pittsburgh on Liberty Avenue, and there was a large sign of Uncle Sam, and it pointing the finger at you and pointing it right at me. It said, Uncle Sam wants you. And it was in front of the Army recruiter. And I wanted to leave Pittsburgh, so I walked in there, and I jokingly say, and this is not true, but it's just a basic joke. Uh, I said, I want to join the Army. They put a mirror in front of my face, and they said, fog the mirror. I did, and they said, you're in the Army. But that was not <laughs> it. But they did not have a written exam, which was really good for me. <laughs> and, and a few <laughs> days later, I found myself, December 28th, um, and I found myself on, in 1961, on a troop train with about 100 young other young men heading for Fort Knox, Kentucky. Got to Fort Knox, went through basic training, ended up getting stationed at uh, Fort Hood, Texas. They sent me from Fort Hood down to Fort Sam, Houston, in San Antonio for training as uh, a medic. Uh, in the, and why they picked that, I have no idea. But along with the not being able to read, I had severe migraine headaches. And for some reason, and again, no accidents in the universe, they chose me to put in Book Pavilion, which is the large Army Hospital at Fort Sam Houston, uh, for a um, uh, an, an examination for a couple of days of why I have migraine headaches. Well, they could never figure out when I got out of there, and I sat down with a couple of the doctors, and they couldn't figure out why I had migraine headaches. Later on, when I became a chiropractor, I figured I knew why I had them. And a friend of mine got rid of them for me because a chiropractor really can't take care of himself. But however, uh, they <laughs> told me that I was dyslexic and, uh, and I had dyslexia and I asked them what that was and they said, your brain's wired different than most people. You see things different, you relate to them differently. And, and I said, well, can I, can I read? And they said, yeah, you could you know, learn how to read and you could do whatever you wanted to do. So for the next two years while I was in the army, I taught myself to read. So my greatest disappointment of not being able to go to the Coast Guard became my greatest value that I had in my entire life. I found out that I wasn't stupid, and I found out I could teach myself to read, which I did. And then the next chapter of my life, I met my wife, Mary, uh, there in uh, Fort Sam Houston, and we had five children, and, and I have now 11 living grandchildren. Thomas passed away a while back at the age of 11, and about five years ago, uh, but my whole life changed because of something that I thought was terrible, which came out to be wonderful.
1: Man, it is amazing. Now,
3: fortunately for me, my dyslexia it was
1: very mild. I would reverse letters in a word, or as I'm writing them, I'd leave letters off. Uh, sometimes I would write numbers down backwards. I wasn't that bad. I was able to read and write and everything, but just, my goodness, I can't imagine what you went through.
3: But You persevered. You realized that you had self-worth. Yeah, well, you know, going back to what you were saying about your letters, till this day I will still have to be careful when I write someone gives me, uh, like when CS gave me your phone number, I had to make sure that I wrote it right because I will invert numbers. Uh, That that seems to be the only problem I have now. I basically am, I would say, um, as uh, society goes, I'm a bit of a slow reader. But uh what I read I, I I uh retain very, very, very well. And uh that that saves me in college, uh because uh, when I got into college I had uh uh one child when we arrived in Saint Louis and then while I was there we had uh two two other children. So uh that retention really helped me a lot.
2: Ernie, wow. that's um, amazing. Besides yes, the fact that they say um people With dyslexia are wired differently. Do they really know the physical um, aspects of it or why? You you see things differently.
3: I'm sorry?
2: Yeah, it is. It is. And that's why I was wondering if they really knew, you know, or if it's just something with a person's brain, you know, something they can't put their finger on.
3: Yeah, well, what happens so to terrible. me is I still sometimes see the words different on the page. Uh, I'll give you a really good example. Uh, we're having this terrible uh, hurricane going through North Carolina right now, and uh, I, um, all my best wishes and prayers are for all those people. But if you look at the license plate on uh, North Carolina's license, uh, uh, I read that wrong for many years. I, I seem to see things different. One day, and, and this was many, many years, it was about 25 years ago, but I was riding, uh, I lived in Williamsburg, Virginia. I was a chiropractor there, and my wife Mary and I were going somewhere, and I looked at the North Carolina plate, and I said to her, look at that. It says, first to fight. They weren't the first to fight, the the, the, the revolutionary, and we're in Williamsburg, Virginia, so everything is like revolutionary war. I said, the war started up in New England, and she says, what did you say? And I said, first to fight. She says, look at it, study it for a minute, and read it slow. And I go, oh, first in flight. And and that happens to me still a little bit today, but <laughs> that, that's the way I would see things. I, I, would, I would read them totally wrong. And uh, writing my books, wow. uh, my typist, Joanne, would give me something to read. And, I, and, and sometimes she would do something wrong on purpose or sometimes not. And she'd say, here, proof this. And I'd look at it, and I'd read it, and I'd hand it back, and i said, it looks good. She said, no, no, no. Read it slow and look at the words because you're reading what you just dictated to me in your mind. You're not seeing what's on the paper, and that, that happens a lot. Well, yeah, because Kel is asking in the chat, what do you mean when wired
1: differently? And I find that sometimes when I'm reading something, I'll read it wrong. And then I'm going, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And I have to stop. I close my eyes for a split second, look back at the words. And sometimes it takes me two or three times to realize what the actual word is that I'm looking at. And it, it's not it's not just vision. But as I understand it, people that have dyslexia are extremely intelligent people. So sometimes the mind is working faster than the vision is or faster than your mouth or your hand is. So Maybe because we're rushing, and she's right. You know, I
3: was taught you had to stop, slow down, and look at it again. I'm I'm exactly the same. Like I said, when Joanne typed something for me and she'd say, Read it, I wasn't reading as much as it was on the paper. I was reading what I had just dictated, and I have to slow down and read things uh, a a time or two just to make sure they're right And, and read almost not each syllable, but each word very, very slowly. And it just happened the other day. I was having some seminars uh, here in the Jacksonville area, and I went to um, the printer. Uh, and this young lady, very, very nice lady, helps me all the time with my stuff, and she knows I'm dyslexic. And she says, how's this look? And I read, I read some stuff that I had written to give to her, and I said, it looks good. And she says, w- how's it look? And I said, it looks good. And she said, look at it again. And I said, oh, I see, a, I see a mistake. And she said, I knew you were going to find it, but you have to, you know, she, she knew how I was. And every time she did something, she would make sure that, that I, I read it once or twice so it was what I wanted and not what I thought was on the paper.
1: Well, you know, what's ironic is, is that um, my husband was a printer and I did the graphics for him. So I was the one that sat down and typed out the text. And we
0: did one year we
1: did a calendar. We were doing we were doing up in New York Tide charts and calendars and we put I don't know how many tens of thousands of these calendars together and the word October was missing the T <laughs> on <all> the whole <laughs> calendar. And only one company we delivered these calendars to noticed the mistake. <laughs> so yeah, it can be a little costly there.
0: Wow! <laughs> yeah, that would be a little bit costly.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh
1: man! Now um, you're known uh, I,
3: as Curtis, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, please.
2: Yeah, I was going to say you you've done some work um, regarding maintaining a positive attitude. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Well, I I, I think I I feel this way. I think that. No matter what goes on in our life, when we wake up in the morning till we go to bed at night, and even going to bed at night, we have two choices all the time. We can choose, like when we wake up, we can choose to get out of bed or we can choose to stay in bed. We can see the day is going to be and choose the day to be a great day or not a great day. Uh, A lot of times when I do do talks and whatever, I tell people, you know, you can open your eyes in the morning and, and go, good God, morning. Or you can say, good morning, God it's the same same words just in different uh just changed around and uh, with a total different meaning so i when i got out of the military uh and i only served three years during the vietnam war but i while i was in the military i should say i met a gentleman a chiropractor by the name of Sidisdale, who became my very very good friend was older than me uh and he already he had five sons and and uh but I went into his office. More or less, again, there are no accidents in the universe. I had a friend uh, in the military. My friend Stan. He said, you know, you got those bad migraine headaches. You should go see a chiropractor. And I said, well, I don't know anything about it. And then we were called quacks. And I said, you know, what are those quacks going to do for me? You know, condemnation without knowing anything. And he said, well, my uncle in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, is a chiropractor, Arnold Palmer is uh, one of his patients, and he helps a lot of people with migraine headaches. So on my way home that evening from Fort Hood, I stopped in, a, uh, in the little town of Killeen, Texas, which was a little a little then, but not anymore. And I uh, walked into this chiropractor's office that and, and I had seen, and I met uh, Sid Isdell, and I told him what was going on. And he said, you work over at the hospital? And I said, yeah. He said, can you get me two x-rays? over there so I don't have to charge you for x-rays and I said yeah he wanted an AP and a lateral cervical x-ray I got that for him I brought him in he showed me the x-ray he showed me where the vertebra was uh, out of place which is called a subluxation he said if we correct that your headaches will more than likely go away well he was totally right he became my friend he took care of my wife Mary who was pregnant with our daughter Lisa never charged us a dime and uh, I wanted to be like him. Uh, he was the first person that I met that I would want to be like. And I said, well, uh, how do I become a chiropractor? And he helped me get in chiropractic college, and you know, the rest was history. I, in fact, i uh, tell you the truth, uh, I did not know enough really to get into chiropractic college as far as academics. And uh, I tell the story, and it, it is a true story that uh, I didn't know that you had to take a, a, a test when you got to chiropractic college. And I sat down with everybody else that first or second day we were there. And I literally, I found out three years later or four years later when I was graduating, I failed the test. But I, again, there are no accidents. And I, I wrote the test, did everything I was supposed to do, and became class president. Uh, for those four years. And when uh, a little bit before graduation, Bert Haneke, who was the dean, came up to me and said, I need to see your speech. I said, for what? And he says, for uh, the commencement. And I said, I'm not giving a speech at commencement. And he said, well, if you, you're class president, if you want your diploma, you will. And, and then he walked over and sat down and put papers on the desk. And he said, these are your tests when they first came here. And he started reading the names and saying, uh, if you want your test score read, say yes or no. And he came to me and, and I said, yeah, doc, read it. And he said, you sure? And I said, yeah. And I said, again, he? said, you sure? And I said, yeah. And, and, and he said something like, you know, 37 or 32 and went on to other names. And I said, Oh God, Dr. Haneke, wait, what's passing? And he said, 69. I said, well, how do, if I'm in the thirties and passing was 69, how did I get in here? And he said, <laughs> true story. He said, remember we built a new office building and we moved all of the pay, uh, all the filing cabinets. Well, uh, when it was right before Christmas, you guys wrote these tests and the secretaries put them on top of the cabinet. And then we built a new building a year or two later and we moved the cabinets, the filing cabinets. And your test was behind the filing cabinet, fell back there by accident. And we had a, a faculty meeting and said, well, what are we going to do with this guy? You know, I mean, he didn't make the grade. Well, he has got three kids in school. He works a couple different jobs. He's the only guy dumb enough. Uh, on the On the school maintenance crew to clean the the cadaver laboratory, no one else wants that job and and they said uh, and he 's making the grade and he's got over uh, he 's got a high a in clinical proficiency, and he 's carrying a fairly good c in academics i mean why shouldn't we let him graduate and they did, and they let me graduate and and in reality though, if we went by um, the standard uh and and they saw my test and it didn 't fall behind the filing cabinet. I would have never been where I am today or never been a chiropractor. It's funny because,
1: as you said, uh, things uh, do happen for a reason. And like I said, God is always in our life. It's just he's always talking to us. We just have to be able to listen
3: and hear the signals. That's right. That's right. I, I, I tell people often, I speak in an awful lot of churches, and I will tell people something about, you know, about relaxing me, or meditating, and, uh, and they look at you sometimes like in, in some of the Christian churches they are very, you know very, very uh, steeped in the Bible. Uh, they may look at me funny when I say meditation, and I say, well, you, you take that as a bad word, and some people will say, yeah. And I said, well, it's not. I said, when we pray, we talk to God. When we meditate, God is talking to us. We're just in silence listening, and, and, and that's basically what meditation is. I mean, there's techniques to get into deeper meditation, uh, quite a few of them. But uh, even if you just sit and listen and try to relax and don't speak, things come to us all the time. Uh, The the funniest story that I ran into was that my mother, I wanted to quit school, and and my mother was going through some very, very uh, trying mental times. And um, for some reason, when when I couldn't read, uh, like in first, second, third grade, she'd make me get my my books and read and spell after dinner while she was washing dishes. And if I, if I didn't know stuff, which I didn't, she would slap me. And, and even to this day, I'm, I'm really, uh, no one, if someone slapped me in the face, I get kind of like a, I kind of, I kind of have a flashback in a way, but um, you know, and I took it, but when I got into high school, I kept saying, I want to quit school. And she says, you're going to graduate. I don't care if you have a wife and three kids sitting in the audience. And that's what I heard all through high school. I went to the Army. I went to uh, chiropractic college. I got up on stage in St. Louis, Missouri, January 28, January 1968. And as I gave not only the worst speech ever heard in a chiropractic college or any (laughs) college, uh, it was the worst speech anyone ever gave. I couldn't lead a group in silent prayer. And and, and I stood there on stage and I looked in the audience and guess what I saw? I saw my wife, Mary, my daughter, Lisa, my son, Tony, and my son, uh, Ernie, all sitting in the audience. I had a wife and three kids when I graduated. She never said graduate from high school. And and the nice thing, I have five children. Those three are chiropractors. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I mean, if you tell me how that all works. I I sure don't have an answer. You
0: know,
1: it's funny because my father, I remember him going to school while we were going to school, and he would sit down at the kitchen table and do his homework while I was sitting there doing my my homework. Uh, and it's it's true. You know, uh, back then, guys coming home, from World War Two. Korea, Vietnam, Um, they were going back to college, you know, and and there are these young whippersnappers in the class thinking they know more than the guys that have been uh, through battle. Uh, It it was amazing. Uh, But my dad did graduate college with a degree in engineering. I'm not an engineer, but I do know how to fix a
3: wire here and there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, you you know, it's like, go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I said it was a great example for us to grow up with, and it's not something you see a lot of today.
3: Well, you know one of the problems with today though, I mean, uh, all the new stuff that the kids are learning and people that are that definitely my age, it's really I'm really out of the loop. I mean, uh, here in um, eleven days, I'm going to be seventy six years old, and i and I just bought a new computer. Uh, and I say just, it was like two months ago. I still don't know how to work it. You know, I, I have this <laughs> earpiece that I'm supposed to be using right now, putting it on my, around my ear so I can talk better in, into it. And I'm just talking in my cell phone because I'm never sure if I have that thing on or not. I mean, there are so many <laughs> things that, that I don't know. I I just uh, uh, signed up for a, do a, uh, do a conference call for a company I'm with, and I got a I got a conference line, and, and I haven't used a free conference call. The lady that um, uh, that runs the company uh, texted me one time and asked why I didn't I didn't use it. And then the uh, owner of the company, Don, he texted me and wanted to know why he didn't use it. And I still haven't <laughs> used it because I'm not sure I I don't know how to do it. You know, I just need uh, I'm so far out of the loop when it comes to all this new stuff. Yeah. But but um, well,
0: don't
3: don't
1: worry because uh, my husband, when I taught him how to do texting, he was like a kid in a candy shop.
3: (laughs) (laughs) My mom, my my mom, mom, who I really do like texting. I think that's kind of cool, but it took me a long time to get into it. (laughs) My
1: mom has a cell phone, and she finally figured out last year how to take a picture with it, and she was having so much fun with that. And she's slightly (laughs) older than you. (laughs) But tell us about these seminars and workshops that you have, uh, because one of them you have is, like, know what your goals are. Uh, We've got kids coming out, uh, being told, go to college, you know, get free Obama college, you know, and they have no idea or direction in which they're going to. So you've got parents paying tuition, and you have students taking out student loans, but no direction.
3: Right. Um, well, I, I think that the problem being is that we we've been kind of, in a way, uh, sold a bill of goods uh, for that every child should go to college, and and that's I don't think that's I don't think every person is college. Not that they're not college material, but they're not maybe either not ready for college or there's something else that they would rather do. And it seems like what we've done with the young people is try to fit the brand the round peg into perhaps the square hole or the square peg into the round hole, whatever. And, and and that one size fits all, that everybody should go to college. But there are so many professions out there that people could be in it and enjoy and make a good living. Uh, that, that would be maybe better suited for them. Uh, one of my grandsons went to college and he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And he just, um, spent four years and an awful lot of money and now he's teaching and he, he likes it, but he's still going to college for now. He has to take extra courses to teach and uh, he spent a lot of, a lot of money. I think that one of the things that if a, a young man or woman wants to go to college, the military right now is offering wonderful incentives to go into the military and come out with money to go to college and also money saved up. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that we can do, but a lot of times parents don't know what's available out there, even in college uh, tuition or grants or whatever. Uh, my other son, he has two, uh, two of my grandchildren. He has two children, a male and female, and uh, one is graduating in May, and the other one is at Temple University in Philadelphia, and uh, will be graduating in another year. And they've been able to get many types of different grants and scholarships uh, that, that they didn't even know were available. But they started looking into it and found there was a lot of things available to, um, to go to college if that's what the, uh, an individual wants to do. I think sometimes parents might push their children to go to college more than the children want to go to because it, it, it's good for, they feel that it's good for them. Uh, good for the children you know well
1: you know my sister who's about three years younger than me when she was going to college she wanted to go into social uh social work and after a while she was disappointed with that she's dropped out of college and my parents hounded me to convince her to go back and i said when she's ready She will go back and she'll know what she wants to do. Just give her time to figure it out. And she took a couple of years off, and sure enough, two years later, she went back. She became an attorney. She graduated in the top ten throughout the country, which meant she could practice law in any state. Uh, She just has to pay the fee. And uh, she's a prominent partner in a law firm up in Albany, New York. She's been a partner in two different firms. Uh, The kids have to find their direction, but this comes to my point where They have to know what their goal is before they take a step in that direction. Without that, you know,
3: what do you tell people? How do you tell them to determine what their goal is? Well, it's difficult as a young person to really know what you – I mean, the average person pretty much changes jobs uh, every five years. So it's difficult to tell somebody to go into college and they're going to spend you know, three, four, five years or more in college, and then when they come out, they want to do something else. and Or they work for that, that a while, and then they find that they've not suited for it or they don't want to do it, and things change. Uh, I was in Williamsburg, Virginia uh, last year, and I went to the Rotary Club meeting that I used to belong to, and one of the guys sitting next to me was uh, OBGYN. And he looked at me and he said, Ernie, he said, boy, he said, you got out at the right time, out of the profession. And uh, I said, why? What's going on, Doc? He said, my wife and I uh, work harder now than we've ever worked. He said, I've been in the business now almost 40 years. And he says, and we're harder now than we've ever worked and we're making less money. He says, our malpractice insurance is well over $50,000 a year. He says I almost cannot afford to stay in practice anymore. Uh, we're thinking of, you know, hanging, up, hanging it up. And so there's one of the reasons why things, things change, uh, sometimes for the better and sometimes not for the best. But I think with young people, uh, I, I don't know uh, how to get them to know what they want to do for the rest of their life. Like my grandson, uh, he, he went for one thing and it definitely wasn't to be a teacher, but now he's found that profession and he likes it. But he's taken other classes now to uh, get his uh, what he needs for the teaching degree. So uh, I think it all comes down to uh, parental communication uh, with the, with their with their children and finding out what they want to do and then helping them and leading them into the right direction. I think that sometimes the guidance counselors in school uh, in schools they see somebody that has a good academic grades and they feel that. Well, they may make a good attorney or a good doctor or something. They may have the uh, the the academic grades for it, but they may not want to do that, and they find themselves going to college because everybody tells them that's what they should do. Go to that particular college or take that particular um, course of study, and they just kind of follow along because they're not sure. And then they find out, well, yeah, I want to do th- I don't want to do this anymore. So,
2: I,
0: I, I guess well, it's, yes,
2: yeah. Speaking of professions, um, you mentioned earlier that your profession was once considered quackery, and I do remember those days. But um, <laughs> has the opinion, the general consensus changed? And if so, are more people going into your field?
3: Yes. The uh, answer to that is a uh, short answer would be yes on both of those. Yeah, it's changed uh, uh, basically because Chiropractors have uh, changed basically their their concept of of how they market uh, the practice. It used to be that it was marketed in such a way, and and not that the chiropractor meant to do this, but it was marketed that people felt, oh, that chiropractor thinks he can cure anybody of anything. They they seen it as a cure all, and it's not that way. Basically, the whole basis of chiropractic is that the chiropractor doesn't cure anybody of anything. The body does the healing. Our whole concept of, of the nervous system, the first, the first system formed is the central nervous system. The first thing is the brain and then the spinal cord. And the spinal cord and the brain are the only two parts of the body that are protected with bone, the brain with the skull and the spinal cord with the, with the vertebra. And the vertebra are like a hollow pipe where the nerves leave the brain at the brain stem, come through the forena magnum, which is basically a hole in the back of the head, and travel down the spinal cord. Uh, the spinal cord rather travels down through the opening, and between each vertebra, the vertebra are divided up into 24, with a little disc in between them for flexion and and motion and absorption of, of shock or whatever, and there's openings on both sides called foranum and they, the nerves branch off the spinal cord and go to different parts of different organs of the body. Our concept in chiropractic is if those vertebrae, several, one, more, or whatever, get rotated out of position, that's a vertebral subluxation, the vertebra being the bone, subluxation being out of its justice position, and puts pressure on the nerve, and that nerve then can't carry the nerve impulse to that part of the body as it should. That organ or part of the body then slows down and starts to develop symptoms or malfunction. And then the medical profession diagnose that many times uh, right, but they diagnose it the, the condition. It's the organ that slows down, so we have to fix the organ. And uh, sometimes it's not the, just the organ. It's the wire to the organ. It's like taking a very, very simple analogy would be uh, taking a hose and hooking it up to a sprinkler, Uh, on the side of your house, uh, a faucet on the side of the house, run the hose out in the yard and put a sprinkler at the end of it, turn the water on, and let the water come out the sprinkler like it was meant. But let's say your child comes along and takes the hose and kinks it, then the water doesn't come out the other end because it's not getting through. Depending on how much pressure is on the kink depends on how much water comes out the sprinkler. And you can move the sprinkler or you could treat the sprinkler. You could put more, more holes in the sprinkler. But if the water's not getting to it, it can't express what it was supposed to do, express water through through it. And oftentimes that analogy is pretty much like what chiropractors do. And and the second part of your question is uh, basically uh, more more young people are going into chiropractic because they're seeing that uh, the concept of it's a a good profession. One of the problems we have is that many young people – uh, now that we have, we used to have four years of chiropractic college. Now they've added two years to it, heavy in the sciences, before you go to chiropractic college. A lot of the kids will come uh, uh, into college for in their two years and somehow find out about chiropractic as a profession, and they'll say, well, that's going to be a good profession. I'll have a title doctor. I'll, I don't have to do surgery so if, I'm, uh, if I don't like to see blood. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to live on a you know a, a nice income, and so they get into it for basically, oftentimes, the wrong reason. They get into it for what's in it for them and not what it's in for the other people. The older chiropractors like myself, we were all under chiropractic care. Every every student in my class, every was had gone to chiropractors for some condition or an immediate member of their family. Uh, in my daughter and son-in-law's class, uh, there they were two and there were one, uh, one other gentleman uh, who were to a chiropractor. None of the others had been to a chiropractor. They really didn't know what they were getting into. So we had more chiropractors, but the problem is that, that hopefully they found out what it was all about while they were in college because, and not just go because of what they could gain. Uh, I, I mentioned Sid Isdale, the chiropractor I went to. He never charged us any money. I was I was in the military. Mary was pregnant with our first child. We went to him uh, when when he when he told us to get there, and we went. And he would never charge us a dime. When I wanted to go to chiropractic college, he wrote letters for me to try to get me into chiropractic college. Uh, when I came out of college and opened my office, um, I had a couple different offices in different states. I had a basket on my desk and people came in like in South Carolina, Somerville, South Carolina. I had a basket on my desk and people came in and got adjusted and they put in the basket, whatever they thought they could afford. I did the same thing in the mountains of Virginia. Uh, you know. So basically, and, and I did it for a while in Williamsburg, Virginia. And basically what I was, I guess what I was trying to do was pay back a debt that Sid Isdell that I felt that I owed Sid Isdell and, once you take the money barrier out of the way, then then people can can get what they need. So it was just this my idea of how I wanted to run my practice. Man, that's called an old-time
1: doctor. I used to have a doctor like that. Um, we would go in and, all right, uh, what's the fee for today? And it would be like $65 or something like that. And it's like, well, what can you afford to pay? And you would write the check or give them whatever you had. And then he says, you know, if you can pay me back the rest of it, fine. If not, then, you know, whatever. He, knows, he knew that right. these people needed assistance. And I came from a family of four kids and both parents working. So, you know, money was tight. And But yet, no matter what, there was always some form of medical care for that person. You know now with with the way we've got with obozo care, you've actually cut down on the ability to people have access to services where in the past, when you and I were growing up, the good old country doctor was always there, no matter
3: what right right and and they there was a whole different reason because they were there for what they could do, uh not what they could get you know and in today's society, you know, I tell people you know we have to get to the point where we are to the point now where we love things and use people. We need to get to the point where we used to be, where we love people and use things. And this past weekend, I saw such a a total outlay of love on Saturday. It was unbelievable. We, we have here in North Florida, uh, a phenomenal number of veterans. We have almost uh, over a, over 150,000 veterans and, in north florida and we have an organization it's a veterans movement actually because we have many splinter groups of like i belong to the vietnam group and i belong to the the vfwn and and there's lots of different the american legion there's lots of different groups there are korean vets uh, but the one that it's called it's called vets for vets and it's a movement to get all these different groups under one umbrella so that we can do things and get things and petition and get better service for the people who need it at the veterans uh, hospital and the clinics and stuff they've come a long way a very long way in the last year because when I first started going there um, and I go very seldom fortunately I'm very healthy and I go very seldom but I, I see uh, the people that work there their attitudes are so much better they're, they're not there like, that, like they have to be there they're there more or less like they want to be there and the care is better and the, the people, the doctors and the nurses take time. I even had one of the nurses the other day uh, call me and, and make sure that everything was okay and and uh, and was, was um, uh, very upset that they forgot. They, I went there on the day of my appointment, but somehow it got mixed up and I got a letter stating that I missed my appointment. And when Kaya called me, I told her and she said, no, you were here. I remember talking to you. And uh, I mean, she said, "I'm going to get this straightened out right away." So they're very, they're very attentive now. Uh, I, I I can't say enough good about how well they're 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 they've come on in a, in a short time a long way.
1: Yeah, because we had on the show uh, Sergeant Dave Davis, and he was going between Florida and New England, and he was misdiagnosed so many times until it was too late. Uh, the cancer finally took him in the end. Uh, at that point, the VA was just giving him a whole rash of of crap, uh, no other polite way to say it. And when he was finally diagnosed, it was just too far gone. So unfortunately he lost his life because of the abuse from the VA system at the time. And, uh, I'm glad to see that it is turning around. It is important that that we do take care of our veterans and take proper care of our veterans, give them the ability to go to the doctor they choose and not be forced to go into a a meat line, which is basically what it became after a while. Most of these VA hospitals are very, very good, but the few, that, like the one in Phoenix, there's no excuse for that, absolutely no excuse. And yet to this day, not one person has been fired for the VA for the abuse of the veterans
3: as a shame. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like I say, this area is very strong (coughs) veteran area. And, and and I mentioned about the vets for vets. We had a program at the veterans auditorium downtown Jacksonville. Uh, There was over 1500 people that came through. We had uh, about eight speakers we had 60 no I'm sorry 80 tables with uh, insurance people and Veterans uh, Administration things different types of things. Uh, one of the guys who spoke uh, he he is excellent. He helps the veterans so much. He works for the government and he's a veteran. You know, he works for the Veterans uh, uh, Administration downtown and uh, he spoke and he gave so much information. It was crazy. But then, so we have the speakers and the comes, people come through and go to the tables, and then they supply a buffet lunch for everybody that was there. We had 80 tables, over 1,500 people came through the door, and we had about a, a, a half a dozen to 10 speakers. And it, lasts, it went from 9 a.m. till 2 in the afternoon, and uh, it, it was great. And uh, it was so wonderful because on the back of my business card, uh, it's a hug coupon. It's a free hug coupon, and, and you know, and it just says free hug coupon, and then down there's two two little kids hugging, and and it says think happy thoughts today, and then below that it just says um, uh, hug somebody today, and then right below that it says seven days without a hug makes uh, without a hug makes one week. W e a k, and I gave out. Uh, I, well, I have I ordered five thousand cards and I must have given out about a 1,000 of those cards at least uh, uh, on Saturday, and I had a, uh, a young gentleman helping me, and he was having a ball. You know, He's like 28 years old, and he he's, you know, like, uh, goes to the gym all the time, and he's well-built, and he kept coming back and going, Doc, every time I give somebody a card, they want to give me a hug. I said, well, the card's a <laughs> three-hug, and, and he was cracking up. He just
0: couldn't <laughs> believe it. And, and it's
3: so funny because he left two days ago. He left Jacksonville. He works on a, on a boat uh, that pushes barges up the Mississippi River, and he, he works 28 days and comes back for 28 days, and he never had anything like that in his life happen to him. Uh, you know, because he's kind of a, uh, 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 you know, that's a, that's a tough job. You've got to be a rough person kind of to be, be on a barge going up the Mississippi River to Minneapolis or wherever in the wintertime. Yeah, oh he
0: yeah,
3: <laughs> was, he was having so much fun. He couldn't believe it. He said, "Can I do this again next year?" I said, "Well, don't have to wait till next year. We have one uh, the first uh, first half of December. We do three a year. You come to the next one." He said, well, "I'll I'll get my time <laughs> off and I'm come. I'm going to come." I said, "Great." <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: And so it just to like, you know, show.
1: <laughs> It goes What's to show that, that no matter who the person is or what their their job is, there's an inner child in each and every one of us if we can only tap into it and tap in the goodness that is innate in all of us. i got to tell you, um, I was at the uh, hospital the other day for a test, and I'm sitting in the waiting room, and there's a gentleman sitting in front of me, and he had on a World War II veteran cap. And as he was walking past me, I stopped him, and I said, thank you for your service, sir. Actually, I got up and I walked around to him, uh, and I guess it was his daughter with him. I shook his hand and I said, thank you for your service. And I told him that my father was a World War II veteran, and I lost him only five years ago. And as he was leaving, he stopped it with me again and thanked me for thanking him. And he had been in Burma. He fought in Burma. So, you know, we're losing veterans from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Every day, and if we don't take the time to
3: recognize them and thank them, then shame on us. That's right. You know, uh, the following that story,
0: um,
3: the gentleman, the young man I was talking about, his name is Brian, and I was in public supermarket, and I I was I put my a couple groceries I had on the counter, and on the belt there, and I turned around, and he was standing behind me. And, he, and, he, and he's big. I mean, he's very, very, very well-defined uh, as far as uh, lifting weights. And I looked at him. And I said, hey, man, how you doing? I said, man, you're really cut. And and he said, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I gave him my card. He looked at it. And he just put it, didn't even look. He glanced at it and put it in his pocket. That night, that evening, I got a phone call. He said, this is Dr. Panza. And I said, yeah, he says, this is Brian. I was the guy behind you in Publix today. He said, I got home, I read that card, I could not believe it. He said, I was almost crying. It's such a great card, I, I loved it. So then I invited him to lunch, and we went to lunch, and I told him about what I was doing at the vets, and he came and did that. And it was so funny, and I swear this is the truth, because it cracked me up. He, he left, and he flew, he flew to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, from Jacksonville. Then he rents a car, and he goes to the ship, and he gets on the boat. And now these are, these are like, you know, like there's 20 guys who work on these boats, you know, and, and they're, and they're rough. They're pretty rough people. I mean, they, they gotta be to have that type of job. And he called me and he said, guess what? He said, the first time he says, and I've been working on this, this ship, these boats for five years. He, he said, I actually had enough time to go up and hug one of the guys on the boat. <laughs> I thought I was going to drop the phone the way he, he was telling me, like he went and hugged the guy on the boat. <laughs>
2: Ernie.
1: So, so, Curtis, you got you one last question? question. Go
2: ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, what are your what are your thoughts on um uh, acupuncture? Acupuncture? I think it works really yeah, well. Uh
3: and and I mean it's it, it's a two thousand year uh practice of people in, in the Orient that uh you know they they have they have it down to a science One of the problems that that I think there is with acupuncture, and and I don't want to be, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, that we as Americans uh, want to make everything quick and fast and make some money from it. And the the Chinese have been working with acupuncture for, like I say, 2,000 years, passing it down. All of a sudden, we have these people who will teach acupuncture for a price and people go to a uh, a convention for a week or a weekend and, and learn and buy the charts and buy the needles, and go back and set up a practice. Uh, and I'm sure some of them are very, very good, and some are mm-hmm. not good. And I don't know how you would figure out who is unless, I guess, in any healing art profession, if you sit down and – Talk to a person, and they want to get, and they'll give you the time necessary to talk to you and explain whatever it is, and you can kind of fill their, fill their vibration, fill their heart, fill their inner inner being. Um, I, I love the statement that Helen Keller made. You know, she said the best and the most beautiful things in the world cannot uh, be seen or even touched; they must be felt by the heart. And I and and I think that's so important. When we're trying to figure people out, uh, we need to kind of fill their heart. Uh, uh, and, and it's an innate to innate thing. It's, it's You can't teach that. You know, people just have it or they don't have it. Uh, I talked to a lady on the phone uh, a little while ago, right before the call. I, I was down in uh, Lady Lake down south of um, Ocala, Florida. And there was an article in the paper about her starting a class on uh, a writing class and how people could write their books and I saw the article and I called her the other day and I told her who I was and I said if you need any help I'd love to help you and uh, I'd love to meet up with you and she called me today right before we got on the call a little while before that and she told me that um, she would love to meet me and uh, get together and you know like we could share ideas to make this a better class and and that that was, that was good because oftentimes, sometimes you'll call someone like that and they'll think you're trying to, um, you know, steal, steal their their thunder or their ideas or
0: something. Yeah. And she
3: was very, very polite, very open. So we're meeting uh, next Thursday morning at 9 o'clock in, in Ocala and uh, talk a little bit about how we can kind of pull things together to make it better.
2: Well, that's great. Well, Ernie, it was a pleasure having you on today. Looks like we have our next guest coming up in the, um, on hold. But is there um, a website you like to put out for our listeners? Yeah, my, to, um,
3: yeah, my website's very easy. Ahead. It's uh, it's just dr no period just drpanza dot and uh, the books are listed on there and information on there and uh, who I am and my my claim to fame is on there also and it, that that's that's my uh, letter from President Reagan, uh, many people, oh, okay. real quickly, I got to go. President Reagan uh, worked for BJ Palmer, who was the developer of chiropractic, and, uh, and way before he was president, of course, but uh, he went on to be president. And so when I wrote my first book, The Life and Times of BJ Palmer, who was a developer of chiropractic, I sent it to the White House, and uh, he sent me back a very nice letter thanking me for the letter. And I also sent him a tape about chiropractic that I had made. And uh, so, so I call that my claim to fame because I never, I don't think I'll ever get another letter from a seated president. That was kind of
0: cool. <laughs> well, well, I, well, I
1: want to. You. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, it has I been a.
0: Go ahead. It has been a pleasure interrupt.
3: having you on. Well, I want to <laughs> thank both. of you. It was my pleasure, believe me. And I, um, you know, it's my my new friend, you know, CS. We just we just met, and that was one of those deals. His his. His information was in the Veterans Magazine that we have here, Small Veterans Magazine, and I saw yeah. it and I read what he did and I called him and said, "Hey, we got to get together and look at look what's happened." So,
1: thank yeah. you both. I mean, it, awesome.
2: it took it about a month, but we finally got together.
3: <laughs> yeah, so we
1: did. Well, right? oh, God bless for all the hard work you both do.
3: Well, uh, thank you so yeah. much for the opportunity and uh, have a wonderful day.
2: And well, we'll invite you. you back. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh,
3: I appreciate it.
2: Okay.
1: Dr. Ernie Panzer, and we've got our next guest in the bullpen, our next victim who's been sitting there very patiently waiting on us, Alexa Floyd, Demetri D. Minor. Good afternoon, Demetrius. How are
2: you doing today?
4: Good afternoon, friends. How are you guys? Thank you for having me
2: on. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Demetrius. You have been
1: all over the place. I was reading your background and looking at uh, some of the things that you've done. (laughs) Oh, man, I I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when you were an intern in the uh, Bush White House. What were you doing there?
4: (laughs) They were definitely fun, but yet interesting times. Uh, From January to May of 2006, I served in the Bush administration via uh, the White House Office of Presidential Correspondence specifically in mail analysis. So any um, written correspondence to the president and his senior staff came through our office and saw a lot of interesting um, mail um, and correspondence. I mean, I saw things from servicemen and women, from Hurricane Katrina victims, uh, to the King of Jamaica, uh, to the Prime Minister of Great Britain, which at the time was a strong ally, ally of the United States and Tony Blair to the commissioner of baseball requesting the president to throw out a first pitch. So um, he saw a little bit of everything, never a dull moment.
1: <laughs> did you by any chance cross paths with Kavanaugh?
4: I did not. Um, I, I knew the name. He was the staff secretary at the time for the White House, um, but I, I did not have any interaction with him.
1: Uh, we're looking at all the circus that's going around his nomination, and what's your take on it?
4: Well, speaking on behalf of uh, Americans for Prosperity, for which I serve as coalition's director up here in the great state of Florida, uh, we support the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh um, simply because he understands that the role of a judge uh, is to interpret the law as written by the Constitution. And not to be one of these liberal uh, activist judges
2: who uh,
4: do not want to adhere to the Constitution. As far as we are concerned, he's more than qualified to serve on the bench. And we're pretty much, and we're pretty um, convinced he will be qualified. He will be nominated um, when it's all said and done. His nomination will go through.
1: No, I agree with you on that. And we've worked, you know, with Americans for Prosperity down here in South Carolina. Well, I'm just a couple of hours away from you. Um, matter of fact, they provided a bus uh, a couple of years back when we were fighting the state on raising the gas sales tax. Uh, they do tremendous, yeah. tremendous amount of work. And then if you have a an important issue like that, they'll come and to, into your neighborhood or to your tea party or whatever group you have, and they'll right. work with you, which I, which is what I love about Americans for Prosperity. I, There's
4: I, a lot of other things. That... Go ahead. Right. I I recently moved to Florida, but I'm very familiar with South Carolina because I used to live in Augusta, Georgia. I'm not sure what part of South Carolina you reside in, but um, I've made many um, trips to the great state of South Carolina. Great barbecue there.
1: (laughs) I love to joke, I may not have been born in the South, but I got here as soon as I could. And one thing I do good is, is barbecue. And oh, man... Right, um, I made right. collards uh, for a party, and then for another party, I made uh, the turnip greens. And I made them so well that they actually thought they were collards. And there's little secrets I learned to, to, to cook in the South. that oh, and ribs aren't ribs unless they fall off the bone. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you got that right. Southern, I didn't... <laughs> southern cuisine and Southern cooking is second to none. That's for sure. Demetrius If you ever make
1: instant grits You're not a southerner (laughs) That's
4: for sure That's very very true Yes CS how are you
2: All right. It's great to have you on Um,
4: Great to be here
2: It's reported that Trump has um, The support of the Black community somewhere in the um, The 30 percentile Um, What's your thoughts on that And um, if that's true um, what are the chances that, you know, we can bring more, you know, people from the black community back to the party that liberated their ancestors?
4: You know, um, I'm going to answer the second half of that question first, if you don't mind. Um, what, what I have find to be uh, the most um, productive way um, to bring minorities um, into the tent of conservatism, Uh, The most effective way, actually, is to not approach it as a Republican, but simply uh, through policy. Uh, For better or for worse, uh, the Republican brand uh, has become very tainted in in recent years. And that's not to say that the Democrat Party don't have struggles and issues of their own, because we all know that that's true. However, um, due to Uh, mythological media narratives, and how conservatives have uh, played defense for so many years, Uh, there is a perception about the Republican Party among uh, many uh, African Americans and minorities that is quite negative, and so we've been fighting against that for years. But if you would go into these communities, and if you would approach it simply by issue, you will find that many minorities are aligned with us. For example, uh, working uh, with Americans for Prosperity, and as you may know, we're nonpartisan, uh, but we support economic freedom and conservative principles. Uh, We did a tax reform event uh, with uh, a local black chamber of commerce. We talked about the benefits of tax reform, how it impacts uh, businesses in a positive way and communities. Now, obviously, um, it was a Republican Congress who passed the legislation, and it was a Republican president who signed it into law. Uh, and even though those facts are true and they're important, you don't necessarily have to mention uh, the word Republican in order uh, to get your perspective across and for people to agree with you. So my answer is this. If we stick to policy, if we stick to issues, we will find that uh, many uh, minorities, by nature, are conservative. What I mean by that is that they're family-oriented, they're conservative on social issues, uh, they care about the job market, they care about providing for their family, and so uh, they understand the concept of free markets and capitalism, and uh, it's the surest way to achieve upward mobility. I do not know if the 36% of African-Americans uh, support. If that's true, I've always been skeptical of statistics coming from the Department of Labor simply because they don't tell you um, everything, including people who are no longer participating in the workforce. So I do approach that with, uh, with caution. But I do think that people are turned off by the Democrats' tactics and methods and that conservatives should take advantage of this opportunity.
1: Wow. It's, it, it is true that, you know, if you sit down and you talk issues one-on-one with people of my minorities, you know, you will find that you have basically the same values. And I had asked this right. of a, look, a local pastor, and I said, well, why aren't more of your members part of, you know, Repu- voting Republican? And I said, you don't believe in same-sex marriage. You believe in hard work. You believe in giving back to the community. You believe in keeping as much money as possible in your pocket, not in the government's. You don't want government messing up in your, your house telling you what type of toilet or light bulb to buy. You believe in a hand-up and not a hand-out, so why aren't you voting the same way I am? And I always get the answer, well, we've always voted Democrat. We will always continue to vote Democrat. And that I, just, I didn't find Bye. that as an answer.
4: Well, it, it, a lot of people... Um are bound or feel uh, obligated to follow uh, traditional trends. And I tell people, I said, I think that, I think a mistake that Republicans make and conservatives make is that they think that minority households are going to be interested in a history lesson. Uh, and while it's important to us, and uh, I think we should be aware of, of history. Therefore we learn by history But if all that we can offer minority communities is a a history of who voted for the original civil rights movement and uh, which party started the KKK and Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, if if that's all we're going to offer to to people, they're going to tune us out. Uh, And and people know when you're you're authentic and when you're really concerned and reaching to people uh, 90 days before an election. You're not going to yield the results uh, uh, that you're looking for because the outreach is not authentic. So um, several factors. I think we just need to learn how to build relationships with people, community with people. Uh, You don't have to go to Harvard and graduate with a degree to figure that out. It's not rocket science. It's science. It's just taking a actual interest in the lives of people. And there's more that's in common than what divides us. I mean, we have families that we care about. Um, many of us have children, and we're concerned about their education. So when you talk about school choice, when you talk about a child's education not being bound or not being determined by the zip code that they live in, you find a lot of commonality and agreement with minority households. And so, uh, you know, I, again, I think if we if we try to tune out the noise and we talk to people issue by issue, um, I think that's where we'll find more common ground. And what we've learned here with Americans for Prosperity is that not everyone is going to be aligned with you on every issue. I think for too long, we've we've given out these proverbial litmus tests to where if people agree with us on abortion and and um, same-sex marriage, but they disagree with us on criminal justice reform or they disagree with us on the economy, we, we fail to um, build a relationship. And so I think we have to take it issue by issue, and if they align with us on one issue, great. We uh, we build upon that. Uh, but if they don't align with us on everything else, uh, that's fine too. We, I mean, it's it's how life goes.
1: You yeah, know, it's funny because you're so correct on that. We were here fighting, because I'm the leader of our local tea party here in Buford, and we were fighting a school increase in the sales tax, not sales tax, the uh, millage rate, and they were having all these beautiful building plans, and one of the plans in this school tax res, uh, resolution that was going to be on the uh, ballot included a air-conditioned snack bar for the high school in Hilton Head, as if the people in Hilton Head couldn't afford to build one themselves. Uh, but it was, right. it was all these really beautiful things that they had going mostly into affluent uh, neighborhoods. And uh, the Black Chamber of Commerce was meeting, and shortly after they broke up, uh, some of their members drifted over and were starting to argue for the sales tax. And when we broke it down and said, how is this tax? going to help the elementary school out in st helena nothing is going into the classroom it is all going into the building itself and not to the individual student how does a snack bar in hilton head high school help you in st helena and when they realized what was in it we turned the entire issue on its head and defeated it and they were right if you point out the issue and why exactly why you're fighting it, what is wrong with it, and what is not benefiting everyone, uh, then people can understand and then vote and and defeat the the progressive left.
4: An educated citizen becomes an empowered citizen. And I believe it was Tip O'Neill who famously said, all politics is local. And for the most part, that is very true. We make, a, we, uh, we make a lot of havoc over national elections and um, the presidential election and uh, the U.S. Congress and uh, uh, the United States Senate, and those are important too. But there's too many people who are aware of that, but they don't even know who their mayor is, who their city commissioner, their county commissioners are, people on the local school, school board that's going to have the most direct impact on their lives. Here in Florida, and my job as coalitions director, it entails the whole entire state of Florida, but specifically, I, I live in St. Petersburg, which is right outside of Tampa. And in Hillsborough County in Tampa, there is this proposed transportation tax. Uh, and there's a group by the name of All for Transportation
2: who's collected
4: enough signatures to get it on the ballot. But what we're seeing is we're seeing progressive movements trying to infiltrate the local and state government with tax hikes, which is going to have a negative impact on people. It's going to, number one, undo the tax reform that has been placed, uh, that has been signed into law, and that's um, positively impacting Floridians uh, all across the state. Number two, you're going to see about 15 to $16 billion worth of tax increase um, over a span of 30 years. And who's going to pay for that? Taxpayers. And, and number mm-hmm. three, they're talking about, well, this is for roads and this is for transportation, but a lot of it is for facilities or resources that most people do not use. And who's that going to impact the most? It's going to impact the poor. It's going to impact uh, those uh, who don't have the finances uh, to to uh, help pay for this huge tax. Uh, and so we're fighting that on a state and on a local level. And uh, like like you just brought up the example of what's happening in Buford. Uh, it's happening here in Florida uh, because if the progressives can't win national elections. They're going to try their best to infiltrate state and local elections.
1: Well, Dee, we've got a phone call. We've got callers in in the studio. Let me bring the first one on. Uh, let's bring on Sweet Sue, if we can get the computer here
5: to accept. There we go. Hi, Sue, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing really good. Uh, you know, I lived in New Mexico through the La Raza movement. We didn't have so much. Of the black issue, that I did feel before the era of Obama, that racial divide was gradually decreasing. Do you think that in the future we can get back to that, where it's not so much a matter of race, and it's not emphasized so much, uh, you know, like 30% black or you know four Republicans things like that? But where we can get to a point where it's all about Americans and citizens. Do you ever see that happening?
4: Good question. It's a great question. Um, uh, just because of the, the imperfection and the fallacies of our own human nature, uh, do I believe racism in its entirety Will be totally eradicated Probably not Simply because um, uh, We're imperfect And um, uh, From a spiritual perspective You know We're born into sin And shape it into iniquity uh, With that said uh, I honestly think it's up to us uh, We will determine uh, Race relations in the future Uh Are are we going to look to uh, some Messiah-like vigor uh, to bridge the racial divide? If so, we're we're in for a rude awakening. I think it's up to us to teach our children uh, to exemplify a positive example um, where we love everyone, no matter um, what the color of their skin looks like. And so, uh, you know, we have to come face-to-face, with a very harsh reality this reality is all of us have our own biases our own uh preferences and our own prejudices that's different than racism but i mean if we're totally honest about it we all have biases towards people and doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to do with skin color it could do with economic status or their social status and two we can become honest with ourselves and try to confront those realities, we're going to keep having the same old conversations over and over again. So I think the short answer to that is it's up to us as individuals. And, uh, you know, prayerfully, we'll continue to get better at it. Oh, thank you. I agree
5: with you. Oh, I'm sorry. I just want to say I agree with you 100%. And I think where we have to start now is with our young people, you know, grandparents, aunts, uncles in school. And you start at a very young age to try to reverse this, and it's going to take a long time. But in my heart, I believe it can occur. Anyway, thank you for taking my call. Oh, Sue, any time
1: for you. I'm going to leave you on, so in case you have another question, you can. But let's bring aboard Cool Mike. Cool Mike, good afternoon.
6: Hey, welcome everyone. Hello. Um, hey. Question for our guest. I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I work hand in hand with Americans for Prosperity. Um, here in Michigan, uh, the liberals are behind so many of these ballot initiatives, the nonpartisans, in which they, we know they're not nonpartisan. They always have three, uh, you know, they follow the doctrine. Three words or you know voters not politicians which they want to take control of how to redistrict district etc etc in the future um i've i've fought many of uh tax initiatives with americans for prosperity in the future where do you see afp afp taking this for those who don't know uh you know tim phillips and uh, the guy from wisconsin is gone so emily is now taking over where do you see the future of this going with AFP as they kind of shift directions and fighting different initiatives?
4: Well, first of all, thank you for your call. And, I, and I, I'm thankful that you are uh, educated and you're aware and you're involved. Um, and that, that speaks volumes. Uh, I cannot speak for the state of Michigan. I, I'm not aware of, of, of every, every initiative that AFP is involved in. Uh, we're involved in several states, and so each state differs. I I can speak uh, for Florida, uh, but I but I will say this: uh, just given uh, the vision uh, of the, of AFP on a national scale, um, they're going to continue to be involved in policy battles uh, that they're going to be on the side of the American people. So. Any policy that prohibits economic growth, economic freedom, individuals having more choice, ASP is going to speak up and, and, and be active. Uh, because, again, uh, educated citizens become empowered citizens. We believe that uh, edu- that citizens should make the best, citizens, excuse me, the best decisions for themselves and for their families and that there shouldn't be government intervention with that. So, whether it's in Florida or whether it's in um, Michigan, um, you know, AFP is going to be sure um, that citizens um, are educated and involved.
6: Yeah, my my point was that, I mean, they're doing these initiatives everywhere. They're involved in the California, um, the California to split it three ways to get two extra senators. One other thing the Libre initiative in Florida. How is that taking effect? For those who don't know, the Libre Initiative is a it's a it's an initiative. It's it's a, under the umbrella of Americans for Prosperity, with with a goal of really working hard in the Hispanic community outreach in a different manner. That uh, in order to reach a lot of the Hispanics and educate them on free markets. So that is my other question.
4: Sure. Yes, the Libre Initiative is it, very effective and very involved across the state. Of course, uh, not just in Florida, but in other states as well. Of course, uh, Florida has a very diverse um, um, demographics um, all across the state. And so LIBRE is involved uh, with um, educating um, citizens about uh, immigration, uh, which includes um, citizenship classes. Um, so there's the Libre Institute that does that, and there's the Libre Initiative um, that uh, uh, does political advocacy. So uh, there's the C4 side and there's the C3 side, and they're, they're having such positive impact in communities, very engaged with um, criminal justice reform. Um, I'm actually uh, going to be doing an event uh, in Ocala, Florida. I believe, uh, Hispanic heritage month AFP with Libre. We're going to be talking about criminal justice reform and it's just an opportunity, um, to build relationships within the community. And so I'm very proud of what Libre does and they're continue. They're continuing to make um positive impact. Demetrius. Thank you, Mike. Good question. Should... Go ahead.
1: Curtis.
2: Yeah, as much as we would like to get away from race and, um, you know, the Democrats are expert at race dating. But in Florida, as you know, we have um, Gillum going up against Ron DeSantis. Um, how should the Republican right. Party approach this, um, this um, you know, pairing off between those two? One being, you know, African-American, one of the first to be, you know, chosen to run that party in Florida, sure. and um, then you got Ron DeSantis.
4: I think people need to stick with the issues. Uh, I know that sounds go. very simplistic, uh, uh, but I, I, I just think it's the uh, the best and the smartest way. Politics is
2: perfect it's motion. And I agree about
4: the uh, the election of. Uh, Barack Obama is the first black president of the United States uh, you think about how for for centuries African Americans thought they'll never see the day they'll never be alive to see the day when African American becomes the occupant of the Oval Office and so you know we get the emotional attachment and the the history that comes around um, historic elections Um, however uh, from they're more concerned about policies um, the, the there's the media likes to know, first woman this the first black this uh, but people are more concerned about which policies are going to be the most beneficial for my household or for my pocketbook point in case point in case an uh, african american woman who attends my church We have a very diverse show by the, Very diverse church by the way But an African American woman Came to me and says What do you know about Andrew Gillum And she said You know he sounds great in this But I don't know about his policies." The fact that she was skeptical the fact that she was seeking out information tells me that people are not just so caught up in electing people just to be the first black or to be the first black woman. And so, or the first woman. But if we can have a dialogue about issues and we keep it civil, we're going to be able to persuade people.
1: That is a fact. That is an absolute fact. I want to mention the phone lines are open if anyone else wants to call in 917-889-3675 and ask Demetrius your question or or have your comment. Uh, As we're talking about uh, voting, there's been a whole grouhaha over voter ID claiming that it suppresses voters, and here in South Carolina, uh, Nikki Haley, when she was governor, said, all right, fine, they want to challenge us because we have, want to have mandatory voter identification. Bring in your driver's license, your passport, your military ID, but as long as it's got your picture on it, we'll accept it. And all of a sudden they would say, oh, no, there's something like two million people that can't register to vote because they don't have a, a driver's license. Well, she said, okay, I'll tell you what. Uh, During this time period, we're going to have someone pick you up at your house, take you over to motor vehicles, help you get that picture ID from DMV, and guess what? We'll also waive the fee. Something like less than 2,000 people out of these 2 million disenfranchised voters actually use the service. So where's the voter suppression?
4: There is no voter suppression. Listen, Here's what you need an ID for. You need an ID to check out a book at a library. You need an ID if you want to purchase alcoholic beverages. Uh, you need an ID to see a rated R movie. This idea that that you need an ID to do one of the most sacred things as a U.S. citizen uh, to vote, which is our civic duty, this idea that is racist is appalling. First of all, I find it offensive. Really what the narrative is saying is that uh, minorities are not capable of getting an ID um, to vote, uh, which really is a racist narrative if we want to be quite honest with ourselves here. Uh, They're saying that, oh, you know, we're incapable of doing such a simple task that we need government to speak up for us. No, Uh, you need a basic ID to do many functions in life. If you can't get an ID to, to vote, I don't. then you don't need to vote. I mean, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's as pedestrian as that.
1: Well, then they went further and said there was no voter fraud in the last couple of elections. Uh, and then also we have a huge scandal out of Florida where a couple of people were arrested, tried, and convicted for voter fraud. Uh, I believe one woman right. voted several times. Uh, you also have up in Pennsylvania where there's – convictions for voter fraud, and we're finding this popping up throughout the rest of the nation that people are, are uncovering not only voter fraud but fraudulent voter rolls with people that were dead listed, solicited as, yeah. you know,
4: voting. Absolutely, well, that's been going on for quite
6: some time, and so uh, isn't it amazing that every single need. human being that dies turns out to be a Democrat voting in another life? None of the not one out of the millions and millions has voted Republican. Kinda of like Kavanaugh. For forty, fifty years now they've been searching for his background for whatever, and out of nowhere, here comes somebody from high school. I mean it just is amazing how how uh diligent these Democrats are.
4: <laughs> Go ahead, Demetrius. Uh no, no, I mean he's got a point. <laughs>
1: Voter id laws are definitely needed. Oh man. I mean I I made joke when I I tell my uh, view for tea party group at at the end of the meeting, you know, vote like a democrat vote often. You know, its I'm joking. I'm not telling people to break the law. Uh, but it, people are are too sensitive, you know, and here you have Diane Feinstein comes up with this secret letter from this secret person who refuses to be identified for something that happened 35 years ago when Kavanaugh was still a minor and she's accusing him of either. I can't even understand what she's accusing him of because we have no idea what's in the letter. Uh, But supposedly 35 years ago, he and a couple of other boys, there was a girl they liked, obviously they ended up cornering her in a room and they held her for a little bit of a while. That's it. He's a 17 year old kid. And you're going to see a Supreme Court nominee being tried in juvenile court. <laughs> really? <laughs> Probably that something the statute of limitations has long expired for. Because on average, the United States, if there was the sexual assault, there's only 20-year statute of limitations. So it's 35 years ago. And where was this person right. when he was being nominated and screened for all the other positions he held over those 35 years? Where was this the this, this secret letter and secret accuser? really this this stinks to
2: high heavens, does it not? Well, I think I think a better i think a better question is where were the Democrats um when Barack Obama was smoking weed back in his college days
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man
4: well, you know, in politics, we see it all the time, selective outrage, and you know uh, oh, yeah. You know the Democrats are playing up to their base, and um, they're basically trying to—they're trying to delay the inevitable. But um, when it's all said and done, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh will be um, sworn in as an associate justice of the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah, you know what we, we're seeing now with all the stuff that they're doing—they're um, not relieving. Dependency upon government Instead you, know, you see them trying to do other things That create more dependency upon government And Lyndon Baines Johnson In his Great plan Coming up with um, uh, Welfare And everything else that's followed along that Has destroyed the American family At first it was the destruction of the black family And the black middle class But now it's the destruction of all families What do we do to bring back American exceptionalism and American values, Demetrius?
4: Well, we strengthen our family. Um, that, that's the first thing. Uh, and we, we have to uh, and it's very simple. Uh, it's not rocket science. Uh, a, two, a child that's in a two-parent family structure, that doesn't mean that they're exempt from trouble and they're not exempt from the multiple thresholds of life. But they're more likely to achieve a good quality, uh, they're more than likely uh, gonna have access to a good quality education, a good paying job, and upward mobility. We have to strengthen the role of families, family. And for too long, uh, we've allowed government to be a surrogate father, to be a surrogate mother, and we've um, we slacked on our role and responsibility um, in raising families. And so, uh, Uh, strong strong families make strong communities. And if we're ever going to have strong communities, we're going to have to strengthen our family, not rely. We need to be teaching them before public schools teach them, before private schools teach them. uh, We need to be the number one and the main teacher in our family. And um, overall, I think we'll see our communities be strengthened.
1: Well, there's a growing phenomenon uh, because now More and more children are being raised by their grandparents, not by their parents. The parents, for whatever reason, step out of the picture. Either they will not or cannot raise the children, and grandparents are now taking on this role. And there was an excellent example in the news last night. I caught this, and I forget exactly where this was, uh, but the son had passed away, and now the, the grandparents had to take care of the children. And they had this. He had, his son had one of these fantastic collectible cars in 1962. I forget what the model was. And the grandparents said, well, in order to get enough money to help raise the, our child, our grandchild, they ended up selling the car at an auction. And when the person bought the car, realizing that the money was to go to help raise the, grand, the grandchild, took the car and gave it back to the auction, had it auctioned a second time. And raised another $20,000. And then the person that bought that car, again, took the car, donated it back, auctioned it off again. So after it was auctioned a total of four times, they raised for the the grandparents something like $80,000 going towards raising this child. And this is a phenomenon we see more and more grandparents stepping into a role that they thought they would not have to do anymore, that of raising a child.
4: Wow. Yeah. And so, and, and that man, that mentality, unfortunately, has been going on for too long. And so, uh, you know, we have to, we have to teach things like accountability. We have to teach things like responsibility. We have to teach things like, hey, you're not entitled to anything. You actually have to work hard for things. Uh, nothing's just going to be given and granted to you, um, just because of your charisma, your good looks. Um, or because of the giftings you have, you have to go out and prove yourself. And it's incumbent upon us as elders or seasoned people in life to to pass this thinking on um, to people who look up to us and people who will precede us. Guys, I apologize, but I do have to jump off of here. Uh, But I I do hope that we can further this dialogue.
1: All right. And where can people find you?
4: They can find me on Twitter at dminor minor eighty five.
1: Well, Demetrius, thank you so much for joining us and we welcome you back in the future.
2: Well, Absolutely, certainly. Thank you guys for <laughs> having me. All right, Demetrius. Uh, Take care.
1: That guy. All right, awesome. so cool. I was gonna say cool mic, and soon you your mic are open. So if you want to join join in a um free for all let's go at it but yeah your friend uh <laughs> curtis Demetrius is is a really great guest and uh, there was more things i had to talk with him but uh hey yeah. we're glad to have him for the little time we did so cool mike and we, can, um, we
2: can always yeah. bring him back yeah
1: absolutely absolutely and uh it's it's, it's interesting because i saw that story about that grandparents uh on the news last night on Fox News, so if anyone wants to go to Fox, they may have the video up there to take a look at it. But we had the guest uh, just earlier uh, that was talking about uh, grandparents, you know, are now, have to be part of the family. They have to take a role model, uh, show and lead by example, and bring stability to the family, especially in these one-parent households. There is a need to show how a healthy relationship should be and how a family unit should coexist
2: together. Curtis? Well, you know, over the years, at least in the last, I would say, 30 years, grandparents have taken on a more prominent role. Um, Most of them have been forced to. You know, I don't think all of it's because they wanted to, but, you know, when their children go to prison or die from, you know, overdose, whatever, somebody got to step up and take care of the grandchildren. So I think that's where grandparents can have a a great influence on these these children, you know, and um, guide them and and hopefully get them back on the right track or if they're already on the right track to keep them there. So I, I think it's important to have grandparents in the picture. And if you don't have grandparents, adopt somebody else's. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Sue.
5: Well, you know, one thing that I've noticed, and I think they're starting to work on this, has to do with welfare reform. And also we're already seeing it in some of the tax reforms that have gone into place where people were actually penalized for being married. And I know in the uh especially with welfare, if you have a man or, you know, the father living with the mother, the amount of money they're getting is actually decreased. So I think while we look at all these other things, we also need to look at that and really, re, you know, do a lot of reforms to where you're not penalized for marriage or two-parent households and things like that.
1: Oh, that is true. You know, if daddy's not in the picture, mommy gets more money. And the more babies mommy has, with different daddy babies, the more money she gets. There was that case a number of years ago in Florida. The woman had something like 13 kids and they were all from different daddies. And she was saying, who's going to pay for these kids? Well, it ended up, you know, she ended up getting arrested and the children finally taken away. But she felt that the government was responsible for the fact she had 13 kids from 13 different daddies. Really? That's not personal responsibility.
2: (laughs) Well, you can trace a lot of this back to um, LBJ and his great society when it really, you know, in actuality broke up the, um, the the home and minority communities because you could get more money, you know, if there wasn't a father in the house. And I, I think over the decades, we we see where that has failed. And the results are out there in the streets with, with kids who who don't have respect for life, young kids who are in jail for murder. And, and, I mean, it used to be one thing for a kid to steal an old lady's pocketbook, but it's gotten much worse than that these days. So, you know, I think it's important to have a two-parent home and a stable home so we can reverse some of what we're seeing like in Chicago and Memphis and Detroit.
1: Exactly. And then make it welfare, uh, work to well, uh, welfare to work, you know, decrease. Hey, listen, if you're able-bodied, you must perform some work, whether you work for the, the local municipality, the state or whatever, if you're shoveling horse horse manure, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and yeah, the horse drawing carriages in Central
1: Park do you have to do something for that money you can't just get money for the sake of, you know, just being lazy just not wanting to work that, that, it has to stop the free ride has got to stop and then people have to take personal responsibility for themselves the idea of the dole may have had good intentions when people were really hurting but at this point we have the highest uh, number of jobs out there that are not being filled record number unemployment especially for minorities there is no excuse for an able-bodied person who wants to work to not get a job so what if you flip burgers in mcdonald's it's not it's not evil we're not we're not disrespecting you but have a respect and work for that dollar that's coming in really Meanwhile, you got to pardon me. I'm getting attacked by a kitten. <laughs> 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 she on my hand. One of, Wait, one so of
6: the, on like, one of the oh, long-term I successes, I think, one of the long-term successes, you mentioned LBJ, Curtis. Uh, here, here uh, The Democrats are so good. They're envisionaries, and they're very good at many of the things they do. They're exceptionally good. And what they did is when they instilled all these, They knew whoever held the reins, the mission would continue. Because realistically, I mean, their mission ultimately is a communist state. That is their mission. And it doesn't matter if it takes 10 years or 110 years, as long as they're slowly moving in that direction, that is success. And in the meantime, we see the things that they continue to do, because they know in many, many ways Americans work against themselves but they have just executed their plan. It hasn't been perfection, but it's been done very, very well. And here is somebody that's uh, really fighting them, Donald Trump. And this is where you see how deep it really is as far as not just the state, but the initiative that they have done over the last how many years in order to eventually succeed the republic into a communist state.
1: That is true. And we've got to reverse the trend. And we've got not just decades, you've got a century and a half of of reversal we have to do. It's going to be a long slog back, but hey, no journey starts without taking that first step. And the first step is the election of Donald Trump. And now he has done more in these two years than we have seen in a long, long time. And so the reversal has started now getting Kavanaugh, um, uh, into the Supreme Court is a priority at this point. And Diane Feinstein coming up with this crazy secret letter that she sent to the FBI. First off, if he committed any sort of a crime, it would have been a local issue, of a local arrest at that point. Why it went to a federal FBI, because it's not a federal crime, but if there was a crime at all committed. And secondly, it would have gone to juvenile court. But something that is past the statute of limitations, why even bring it up? And why at the 11th hour, if only to stir the pot? You know, they couldn't get Kavanaugh defeated any other way by pulling some dirty trick like this. And it's exactly what it is, a low-down dirty trick.
2: Yeah, I think the American public is more sophisticated. You know, having seen these things like through the Bill Cosby case and, Quite a few other um, prominent cases. We we see people like Pelosi and Feinstein, you know, come up with these these gimmicks, and and we see right through them. I believe most of the the you know public who are critical thinkers or or at least staying tuned in, and it's not going to work. You know, it's not. So they they just ought to stop, let the process work its way through, and, and get this guy in, you know on the bench. And be done with it, they're going to get their turn if they ever win again, and that's where I look at it when they won, we didn't like everything that Obama did and the Democrats, but we didn't pitch a fit like you know like they did, and now that we we won our side, it's like you know they cannot accept that, no matter what, so you know it's, wow. it's their loss because they're going to be defeated with that attitude
1: the world of intolerance, tolerance from the left, and it's it's starting to backfire on them. The Me Too crowd and everything else is starting to really backfire. Black Lives Matter, uh, Antifa, it is big time backfiring. And then when you see people go absolutely berserk on their online rants and and attacks, physical attacks, God forbid if you walk out of the house wearing something that has Trump on it, you will be attacked. So what's the normal average citizen sees this, they realize this is not what America's about, and now the walk-away movement is growing in power and strength, and the videos that are showing up on YouTube, some of them are great, absolutely well-produced ones, but you notice the vast majority that are saying walk-away happen to be minorities. So yeah. there's something to the story. We're down to our last four and a half uh, minutes of the show, but
6: uh, just, just real, real,
1: real quick, quick. we've got, we got 30 seconds.
6: It, I we still have a mentality in the Democratic Party that black people can't do anything without uh, you know, the the white liberal. And that mentality that they still think that. That's why they think the media is effective and it's not. They're going to find out in November, at least at the federal level, that uh we're working to make America great again.
2: That's right. Well,
1: oh, cool Mike. Thank you for joining us, and Sweet Sue, thank you for joining us also. Uh, we'll be back here on Tuesday. We've got Twilo that will be joining us, and we've got an author, James – I'm going to try to pronounce his last name Sak- – <laughs> Sakoninsky, or whatever. Uh, he's got a new book out, The New Paradigm, Volume 1, on how different things he feels should be done to change America back to its exceptionalism and its founding principles. It's an interesting book. Some things I agree with, some things I don't. But uh, also next week we have Barack, no, Baruch, Baruch Lettner. <laughs> uh, he's originally from Russia and is now an American okay. citizen and spends his time between Canada and the United States. Excellent. I spoke to him on his phone, and he is a joy to talk to. And John Gondalo will join us back again. Remember, Chris, we had him up at the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention. So we'll be talking more deep state, to gentlemen. Great guests lined up all through the end of the month. And if you're out there in the path of uh, Florence, please be safe, please be careful, and get yourself to safety. So until then, I say good night, and God bless, and I'll leave you with our closing song when the roll is pulled up yonder. Take care.